Hi, everybody. Welcome back to It's Not Magic, our podcast from Sixth Street. We invite influential leaders and founders to get to the core of how they're creating innovative solutions to stand out in their industries. I recently had the privilege of moderating a really inspiring panel at a Sixth Street event at the Dallas Holocaust and Human Rights Museum. It was sponsored by our Black Employee Affinity Group, of which I am a proud senior sponsor. Dallas is a big hub for us. It is our largest office, actually, and a central hub for the control side of our business. And we are getting the word out in Dallas about us and recruiting Black professionals in Dallas. And so that was part of the event that we had in December. And you're going to hear from three incredible individuals and friends of our firm in a conversation about leading with integrity, about building strong cultures, about fostering meaningful relationships, and about building your career. And I think you'll enjoy it. This is hard because we have so much wisdom and experience from the military, from the highest levels of government, from technology, sports, the nonprofit world, VC, entrepreneurship, and we're going to try and extract it in an organized and exciting way. I'm not worried about exciting, but it's my job to organize. You're right. This is is not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. It's not. No, it's not. But you're going to help me make it easy. Not impossible. (laughs) We had a call last week. I said, make sure that we all, you know, talk over each other and make it a conversation. And we're taking that seriously. And I appreciate it. Um, let me introduce our, our, our guests quickly. Um, uh, in, in this order, but also it's alphabetical by last name and first name. So it's an unassailable, uh, organizing principle. Uh, Clarence Bethia, thank you for being here. You um, are now an entrepreneur in residence and an investor at uh, True Ventures. Um, you are the founder and the executive chairman of Upsea. It's a venture-backed tech company um, that was disrupting the that is disrupting the the consumer warranty space. Uh, you're going to talk about your experience. I hope at Best Buy, which is a super interesting story. Uh, you were you did that until April of 2022. Uh, you and your family live here in Dallas. You're very committed to communities here as well as in St. Paul, Minnesota, where Epsi was founded. Um, you're originally from Decatur, Georgia, if I'm oh, not yeah. mistaken. And um, you are a committed mentor to entrepreneurs and young professionals in business. You've been super generous to us on that front, and so we thank you. And so we're looking forward to hearing from you. Next to you is Major General uh, Rodney Lewis. Uh, who um, retired in uh, June uh, from the Air Force. He was a two-star general uh, and deputy director for force protection at the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon. Uh, You are a graduate of the Air Force Academy where you uh, won as a senior the Hester Award, which is, um, I'm I'm, going to get it uh, wrong, but basically right. It's like the award for the best graduating senior in terms of loyalty, bravery, intellect, all that stuff. You played football for Air Force. You have an incredible career that we're going to talk about. And um, you were also a White House fellow at some point during your time in the Air Force, and you are on the board of the White House Fellows Foundation. Um, and I joked this morning when you spoke to our group that you're the worst retiree in history because two weeks after you retired in June, you got your PhD. Um, and I, I, when I tell people this, they laugh at me because they think I'm joking. You also then have since then, it's only I mean, it's December, but okay, you trained on the new um, on some new cons- uh, um, uh, commercial aircraft, seven eighty seven Boeing seven eighty seven Dream for United, and you f- will fly flights for United. So you might get on an international flight on United Airlines, and General Lewis could be your pilot. That is a, that is true. Um, so your retirement does not look like a lot of retirements. And then, uh, last but not least, 
someone who's definitely not retired uh, and does not, <laughs> though it feels tired, I think, uh, sometimes, is, uh, is Sean Mendy, co-founder and partner of Concrete Rose, a, a venture capital firm that is uh, near and dear to the hearts of us at 6th Street um, and has been a guest on the podcast before. You're a Bay Area native. Well, so first of all, Concrete Rose, for those of you who don't know, I think most of you do know, um, is, a, is a firm that invests in founders of color and in, in companies that uh, serve underserved communities and in other um, you know, startup companies that are uh, serious about what we'll call the diversity proposition in a reductive way, but I think you know what we mean. Um, Bay Area native, you spent your career working to close opportunity gaps in Silicon Valley. Um, and prior to Concrete Rose, you were, you were an executive at the Boys and Girls Club of the Peninsula, an advisor to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, uh, as a venture partner at Next Play Ventures and an entrepreneur in residence at Sixth Street, uh, you have experience it's building. Like, it's like the general's retirement. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> building meaningful connections across the venture ecosystem. Guys, thanks for being here. This is uh, it's an unbelievable opportunity for us to to get some wisdom from you. So I'm going to start Rod with you, if I could. You you um, I've heard we've heard you talk about the different seasons in one's development, in one's life, in one's career, and I, I'm very interested by this topic because I'm getting old. Uh, and, but I also think it's an important topic for people to hear. You graduate, you become an airman, you, um, I forgot to mention you've flown 3,600 hours of missions, including combat missions. Like, you become you know, someone who's at the, in the rarefied air of official Washington. Like, these are very different skills. So to say you were 37 years in the military as one thing is very reductive. How do you do that? How, how does one do that, you know, going from when you're doing the thing and you become good at the thing, and then you have to, you get into another seat, and you have to become good at a very different thing. H how do you maintain that frame of mind? I think it's, uh, well, first of all, thanks for the question, David, and thanks for, for allowing me to be here and be on stage. Um, I think as you think through the arc of your career, you know, the things that you think about as a 20-year-old are maybe different than a 30-year-old or 40-year-old. And as long as you have that intellectual curiosity, that's the key that propels you to put yourself in different situations and just absorb whatever you can to, you know, lean into that. And I think that's what I've been able to do with my career. The Air Force was wonderful in presenting different problem sets and different opportunities for me, whether it was flying airplanes or sitting, you know, in the White House or you know, doing something that I hadn't imagined doing, but the intellectual curiosity and understanding that you do have those seasons in the arc of a career, and you just apply what you've learned in the past, those experiences, and you apply them to the present, and then you also look over the hill and over the horizon uh, for the future. I feel like, Clarence, you have some experience with this. You, you've, you've been, there's a through line, maybe you can talk about it, of entrepreneurship throughout your entire career from, you know, the trucks to the gym to to um, Upsy, like, but there are different businesses. You've actually watched my videos. That's of course, amazing. that's awesome. Well, I'm just gonna show up here and just like introduce myself in front of 100 people. <laughs> it, it happens. Believe me, it happens. Um, you know, I, I think the first of all, thank you for for having thank you for me. being here. Um, I think the arc of my story going from, you know, the trucking industry to the basketball to starting uh, a company and then to, to VC, um, one, you know, it, it, it's, it's by the grace of God that I went through all of that and made it here today. 
Um, and I, I think that without him, like, I don't think any of that stuff happens. I don't mean to get all churchy and preachy on you, but okay. it's, it's the truth. Um, and, you know, then my wife, who, you know, who's here with us tonight, you know, it was without her believing in me before I believed in myself. That was really important. And so for me, I don't take any of this for granted because I know that, you know, a, a kid from Decatur, Georgia is, is not supposed to be here today, but I'm super fortunate to be here. But different skills along. So how did you, the trucking company, I felt like, you know, you learned how to drive a truck and then you guys hustled and you bought another truck and you drove the crappy truck and you, you like, and then, but Upsy, where you take the lesson as you kind of observe while you're at Best Buy, wait a second, why are we doing this? Those are, they're, they're similar, they're scrappy, they're figuring stuff out, but they're different. Were they different? Yeah, totally different. And I have a saying that if you want to do things that other people can do, you got to be willing to do the things they want, that most people are not willing to do. And when I was driving truck and lifting sheetrock, every day, a thousand pieces of sheetrock a day, that same hard work pays off today. Like when running a company or venture capital, you know, it's all about persistence. And am I willing to do the things that nobody else is willing to do? Um, then I also believe in EQ. I believe you have to have unbelievably high EQ to understand the room that you're in and where you fall at in that room. And I just think that's been a special talent of mine, being able to understand, I'm in this room, here's what I need to do to succeed in this room. Sean, when you, you guys are at Concrete Rose are evaluating talent, I, I know you, you're very rigorous about this. Are you testing for this, this adaptability? And how do you do that? And if not, do you want to start? Uh, <laughs> adaptable. So we have the way we evaluate companies. You've seen this, but we have it's our rubric. Uh, Clarence has been through it. We invested in Clarence's company. Um, and it's 11 categories with like seven to 12 questions per category that we're asking about. So in evaluating a founder, yes, adaptability is absolutely one of those things. Um, one thing that we try to do with our process, or just in everything that we do, but especially with our investment process, is to make things as objective as possible. Um, a problem in venture capital is that folks will, will often invest in somebody because there's something they, they really like about that person they can't put their finger on, that the person's just got it. Um, there's something about them, and we want to get away from that because, one, what if you're having a, what if you ate a bad burrito that day and you're, you're not feeling it, and then that person you think doesn't, hasn't got it, but really it's just you're feeling like crap that day, right? So um, the more it, these are observable, demonstrated things that we can, uh, we can um, observe, the better. So adaptability, it's... Not just are we looking for adaptability. What's the evidence that this person has? You know, what's the evidence that this person can do that? That we can see in their background. It doesn't have to be adapting in the workplace. It can be adapting, you know, uh, in, in a home situation or in a, an educational situation. It's often in the workplace because these are people who have often been doing something professionally that has led them to identifying a problem that they then want to solve. But um, I think if we're not seeing that, like you just can't be a startup entrepreneur, and so it's kind of a deal breaker to not see that in, in the founder or their co-founder. Um, but it's absolutely, you know, super important to what we do and what we look for. Ron, I feel like the, yeah, I feel like the, the Air Force must have some tried and true methods at this point, taking in raw material, if I can put it that way, of like young men and women who are looking to, and, and looking to serve their country, and, but they don't know what to do. Like, how, what, how do you do that? How do you, how do you bang people into shape? Well, so the Air Force, 700,000 people total, total force. 
And it is a process. It's a process that, you know, there's a framework uh, in that initial process is what we consider boot camp, right? Where you can take any individual from any location in, a, in America and you bring them into this organization. And the first thing that you have to have is the culture. You have to create a culture that's sustainable, that's welcoming, and one that is full of rigor, right, in order to get the best product. So as we bring individuals in and we think about, you are an individual, however, we're gonna make you a part of this team. And that's the, that's the secret sauce, I think. Being a part of a team and being part of something bigger than yourself, and that's taught at the very beginning. So people embrace that. And I think as long as we have that framework that's set, and you know, of course, there's measurables along the way that you have to do your physical stuff and mental stuff, et cetera, et cetera, so that we can place you in the proper job and role. And that's important as well, uh, putting the right people in the right space to help drive the mission forward. And I think the Air Force does a great job of doing that. Are there applications? Okay. Well, just building on, on that, and I think this is something that I would assume would serve you well in the military, but also just coming back to adaptability. Like, it doesn't mean, adaptability doesn't mean you always know what to, like, you just figure it out on your own. It's also the, like, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Like, do you have the humility to be able to admit to yourself, I don't know how to do this? And then do you have the confidence to communicate that you don't know what to do? And then do you have the discernment to figure out who's the person I need to go to or what's the research I need to do or what's the process I need to go through to actually learn it? So adaptability doesn't mean, oh, I can drop this person in any situation and they figure out what to do. It's what does this person do when they are uncomfortable, when, they, when something needs to change? Can they recognize something needs to change, understand what they don't know themselves, and then figure out how to go and solve, solve the not knowing part of it, if that makes sense. And like, so in terms of when it comes to culture, and something that I've, I've seen as somebody who, in attempting to start an investment firm and walking into a Sixth Street office with this, these kind of two crazy guys saying, we'll help you do it. This is, Steepman's one of them and Alan Waxman's the other. Um, <laughs> it was being in a situation where, all right, these are people who are best in the world at what they do. Um, is it safe to admit, I don't know, I have no idea what I'm doing. And, um, you know, again, back to culture, the culture at Sixth Street, at least in my experience, allowed me to, to do that and it was actually encouraged. And then I noticed that, all right, this was not unique to just my situation. This was also people who were leading real businesses. This was Alan Waxman and David Superman like themselves, like the two people who you would expect um, to be adaptable and to know what to do. Coming to people, didn't matter where you were on, on an org chart and asking, asking what to do or asking what people thought they should do and trying to solve, find those solutions. And that, I think, is key to the culture of any successful organization is th that humility and that, you know, uh, that safe space to, be, to not know something. I think you're talking about a two-way street, too, right? You have to create that environment where people feel comfortable and they know they're not going to get laughed at or yelled at for not knowing something. Or, you know, back, you know, it, it, to take it a step further, you know, things get messed up, right? And if things get messed up, you want someone to raise their hand as quickly as they possibly can and say like, this got messed up or maybe don't use the passive voice, I messed this up, but I wanna figure out how to fix it because that, 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 that's, how we, that's how you snuff out problems and that's how you learn. To your point earlier today, Rod, about, about failure and, and learning from failure. How, how do you, and maybe Clarence or Rod, you can answer this question, how do you develop that culture? Like what, what, are, what are, do you have stories about like how you manage to make that really alive in your organizations? 
So I'll, I'll take a stab at that first, and then Clarence, I'm sure, has something to do with it. But as we're having this conversation, one of the things that, that's resonating in my mind is this, this term courage. So not only creating that environment and that culture, but me as an individual, I have to introspect. I have to think about what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, and have the courage to ask for help. And I think that's so important because most people, I won't say most people, but a lot of people fail to get to that next level because they didn't have the courage. You know, as Sean said, hey, I'm going to lay this on the table. I'm talking to Alan and David. I don't know this, but I want to do this. This is my vision. But he had the courage to explain that and stand in front and say, can you help me or will you help me? Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's courage. It's also humility. But I think it's the ability to be like, it was my fault. And sometimes that means you you saying it's my fault, even when it's not your fault, to make sure the team understands we're all in this together. That's leadership. I think the, the, the buck stops with you. Like, I, I understand that ultimately whatever happens here is my responsibility. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, less provocative, but maybe slightly pro provocative. Um, how do you build that culture is you pause and you actually think about the culture, what's important and what type of culture you do want to have. And then you do a lot of work to define it. And then you do a lot of work to define what behaviors you're looking for in your organization that actually reflect the culture that you want to create. So what are the values? We call it vision of values it's, um, within our organization. But let's define what the values are. Let's define why, you know, what those values, why those values are important to us and what that actually means. And then let's define when you're in a meeting, if you say you want to have this type of meeting, what are the behaviors that you're, we're looking for within this organization that demonstrate that you, that we are, that's the culture that we, that we value, that this, the type of people who will do well uh, will understand that this is what we're looking for and they can actually deliver on that. Yeah, and I, th I think the truth is culture only shows up, real culture only shows up when it's bad. Like when things are going wrong, then culture gets pressure tested. Yeah. It never gets tested in the good times. Do you have an example? I have a bunch of examples. Okay. Thank, you. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> um, probably the, the example that sticks out to me was when COVID happened, right? We, we, had, uh, we spent a year building an office in Minneapolis. We moved in January 3rd, COVID kicked us out March 23rd and our, our team was looking at me saying, you know, when you hired me, you told me you were going to have my back. You were always going to put me first. You know, I told the, told our team those things when I was, was hiring them. And it got to the point where, you know, and I'm sure Sean, you remember this time investors are like cut head count 50%, you know, burn all of those things. And I remember I went to an advisor and I said, you know, our culture says that I'm supposed to keep everybody on. I'm not supposed to listen to investors, you know, but I got to raise another round. So, so I, need, I need these people to be bought into me. Um, and he just told me, he said, never sacrifice your culture. And so I went back to the team over Zoom um, about a week later. And I said, hey, you know what? We're going to keep you at full pay. I'm going to cut my pay. And my wife is laughing back there because she's like, he really did that. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm going to cut my pay. I'm going to continue to pay you full salary, and we're going to get through this storm together. Um, a year later, we raised one of the biggest C, uh, uh, Series A in Minnesota history, and it was because our team was bought in. Like, hey, this dude is serious about taking care of us, and it, it, it paid dividends. That's 
It's great. I mean, COVID was hard. Any other lessons from COVID, by the way? I mean, as leaders? Well, I can tell you, you know, just to kind of piggyback on the, on the culture aspect, one of the things that I think about are core values. And I think that's where leaders really spend time thinking about, this is the environment that I'd like to create. And these are the core values. I know Sixth Street has created as their core values and that, and that matters. And I think as a leader, setting the stage for the culture is important, but it's extremely important to just communicate that, communicate it. And then when you think you've communicated enough, that's when you're just getting started. Again. And that is so important. And then one of the other things that I found as well, when you do see that situation where you can say, let me use this to show folks that we believe in what we've been talking about, you actually have to lift that up, elevate it to the highest levels in the organization and share that with not only the stakeholders internal to the organization, but the stakeholders external to the organization. So they understand what you're about. I think that's important. So core values is a piece of that as well. Can we talk, I don't like you talking about culture. It's what's more important than that. Clarence, I've heard you talk about grace as a, as a defining element of the culture you want to live in, presumably in your life, but also in the company. What is that? Grace is an interesting thing because most people don't understand grace until they actually need it. <laughs> See, when I start getting, that's a very that good sign. It's a very good sign. powerful, right? Incredible. Hopefully my film guy got that for, for Instagram. Well, I know they're focused on you. <laughs> um, but, but grace is, is it is at the core of, of who we are as a company. As a matter of fact, in our office, it says, live life with grace. Um, and grace often is like this, this biblical thing that people want to talk about. But for us, it's about how do we treat each other in our worst times? Um, how do we treat our customers when they're calling us and they, they need help? Um, so grace for us is, is, uh, is who are we at our core? And you know, I have another saying, I have a lot of sayings, um, that says... 95% of the decisions that are made about you, you won't be in the room for. Mm -hmm. You won't have, see? Uh, you heard that? <laughs> I was actually made. <laughs> um, you, you won't be in the room for. <laughs> this is not meant to go this way, by the way. <laughs> um, and, and I think if you think about that, how you treat people, because you never know if it's going to be that janitor that makes a decision about you. Um, so treat everybody well, because then more of those things will go your way than not. I'm going to unpack that a little bit because there's, there's two things there I heard. One is, you don't, you know, you know, sort of um, what goes around comes around, you, know, you don't, and uh, it's kind of a karma point, which I believe in. It's also, a, we call it presuming good faith. Grace is more succinct and probably a nicer way to say it, but presuming good faith. Like, listen, not everybody's going to say everything exactly the right way all the time. We're not all going to have our best days every single day. Let's... Let's let's presume good faith. Let's assume that we're um, uh, you know trying our best, and 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 even though we might not agree on stuff, let's let's have that all um, uh, you know be left outside and 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 and, and treat each other well. Is and, and Rod, I have this question for you. The the state of the world right now is so divisive, and people are always asking corporate leaders to speak out on particular issues or to have a point of view, and it's very fraught um, and maybe very necessary as well. The military has to stay 
focused on the mission, and God knows you got a lot of opinions inside the military from left to right. How did you make sure that that stuff sort of ended at the water's edge and you were able to you know, keep people focused? What's the, what's the secret? So I think the commonality with the military is everyone in uniform raise their right hand to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And that's the, that's the, the bond to know that what I'm doing in uniform, you know, I work for you. I work for the American public. I work for, you know, the president makes a decision at the executive branch, legislative branch, judicial branch. I work for the American public. So the decisions that are bestowed before me as a, as a commander, as an airman at the basic level, uh, I know that I'm doing this for a greater cause for my country and for the elected uh, individuals that have, you know, ordained that order. So, so I hope that it's the right thing, right? Uh, whether I'm from Texas, Oklahoma, California, you name it. Uh, but I know that I have to do that duty. So that, that piece, and then it also ties to the mission. And we talked about this today. You know, really the, the mission of the Air Force uh, that I've been a part of is to fly, fight, and win at the basic elements. Uh, and what does that mean? That means that I know the mission. I know that that person that we just talked about that showed up in boot camp is learning that mission, fly, fight, and win. And everything within the organization, every ounce, every penny that the American public has put into the military goes towards me and that individual doing the mission. And the mission is bigger than me. And it's bigger than all of us. It's the voice of the American public. So that helps keep us focused. And I think any organization, whether it's Concrete Rose or you know, UPSI or Sixth Street, if you can define your mission and everybody in your organization knows the mission, then you can achieve great things. And some of the division that you've talked about, you know, you can, you're going to bring individuals in your organization that have different experiences, different pasts, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to have something that galvanizes everyone together. And that's, I think, the secret sauce to the military. I, Rodney Lewis, do solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Ask him more questions. <laughs> there, was no, there was not one mm, so I'm, not, I'm starting to suspect that Clarence knows the mm's in the front <laughs> row. I'm talking about dissension. Gee whiz. Plants, right? Jeez. That's a tough crowd. Are these plants? <laughs> Sean, I'm going to ask you a question. I want, I want to talk about um, relationship building. You're, you're an incredible relationship builder. And I want to talk in particular about mentors. I think we've all benefited from great mentors and people who took an interest in us. What do you think, and, and maybe there's you know, people out there who are in the whatever arc of their career, how, what, when you're a mentor to somebody, what makes that a, a valuable relationship, or valuable is the wrong word, rewarding relationship for you? With the idea being that like someone who's thinking about, gee, how do I get that mentor to take an interest in me? Maybe across racial lines, maybe across um, age lines or functional lines or whatever, like, why would that person take it? In? What, 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 tell me what makes it valuable or, or rewarding for you when you get to mentor somebody. That's an interesting question. Um, what makes it valuable for me? Uh, well, so usually the people that I'm mentoring have similar values or on a similar mission 
to what I'm on. So it, it's actually just usually in service of the mission, right? Um, or, the, or my vision for what I, I feel like the world should be. Like folks who are, you know, diametrically opposed to my views are not coming to me asking for guidance. Maybe they should to be able to beat me, but um, but uh, so usually it's just in service of whatever this common goal that we that we typically have. Um, as Clarence was just at our um, at our annual summit, our founder summit, and we had you know about a hundred founders there, and we got all these uh, tech leaders uh, who built some of the biggest companies in the world sharing their wisdom and connecting with folks, and people are coming up and um, and thanking us for doing it. But the whole, I mean, the reason we're doing it is somewhat self-serving because they are building the types of companies that we want to win, that we want to grow, that we want to see shape the world. And so it's in the same way that mentoring somebody who's coming to me for advice who's trying to do something that I want to see happen. That's that's the very, you know, the simple, I guess, self-serving answer. Um, and then I think I just, I enjoy learning from all types of people, right? There's a Ralph Waldo, Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, uh, every, he, he says every man, I say every person uh, uh, I meet is in some way my superior and in that I can learn from them. And so you can learn from anybody. Everybody knows something that you don't know about something. And so I'm curious and like to learn from people and in those mentoring relationships. Similarly to how I've formed most of the, how I've built relationships with most of the mentors I have, folks are not coming to me, well, the folks who I spend time mentoring are not coming to me saying, hey, will you be my mentor? It's like the eighth time that we meet that I realize I'm already mentoring them because it's just been interesting. I've been saying yes to the meeting because they're bringing something interesting to me or there's something interesting about them and I want to spend time with them. There's no mentor that I have. People come to me saying, hey, what are the keys to networking? What are the keys to recruiting a mentor? Be an interesting person, working on interesting things, who has high standards, who pursues excellence, who does what they say they're going to do. And I think that, will, that there will be gravity that you create that will... Um, that will uh, recruit those mentors, and then also kind of be lucky too. So, I love that. What about you, Clarence? I mean, how do you build sustained relationships, genuine relationships? Not that it's, you know, supposed to be in the service of something economic, but like you have to be intentional about it. A word Rod used a lot today. Yeah, I think it's about being authentic. Every single time you meet me, you got to meet the same Clarence every single time. And if you do that, I start to build trust with you, and then. The wall comes down, right? I think you've you've seen enough things with me where I talk about the story of the CEO of Best Buy. You should tell that story. Yeah, I know that's where you were taking me to, by the way. Good job. Um, <laughs> Davis, like we're never inviting this dude back ever. Again. I'm, I'm gonna every single episode. I want you. To <laughs> um, uh, and he he changed my life. You know, I'm a kid from Decatur, Georgia. I grew up selling drugs my whole life, in and out of jail, in and out of juvenile. Um, just doing all of the wrong things that a young man from Decatur, Georgia would do. Um, and uh, the former CEO at Best Buy called me to his office one day. We hadn't had a real conversation. Um, I didn't really know who he was. Um, and he called me to his office and sat me down um, in, the, in the cafeteria and he said, hey, he's like, I think you're special. And I, re I remember the moment because, you know, I, I didn't grow up with a father. I didn't grow up with positive male role models. And I remember sitting at the lunch table and he, he saying, like, he said, you be quiet, I'm going to talk. And I was just like, like, okay, like, sure, you're paying for lunch, so, <laughs> like, it's fine. Um, and, and I remember, uh, like, I vividly remember, like, I had a burger in my hand, and he looks at me, he says, I think you're special. And, I mean, like, I'm, I'm already a crier, right? So I'm a crier, right? So, like, 
I'm crying. I got snot coming out of my nose. And I'm just like, like a man had never told me that before. And he just told me, if you will listen to me and trust me, um, I will give you, I will make sure you have a life that you never even knew existed. Um, and it came to pass. So um, I think mentorship is incredibly important in my life. But sl slow that down. How did you come to be having this burger? How did you, how did, what did he see in you? Like, what, 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 what is this, what, how does this happen? So um, I worked at a gym, this basketball gym. Um, his three sons was there doing basketball. I was doing sales there. So I was just talking to all the parents. Um, we never had really had a conversation, but one day he was late for his payment because we didn't have a credit card on file. And I asked him, I said, hey, um, Mr. Dunn, like, we don't have a payment on file. You have three kids here. You owe us like $8,000. So could, could we get you to pay that, please? Um, <laughs> and um, I remember he, he, he pulled out his wallet, and I thought back to when I was a young man in the streets, and the only time you saw guys with money was when they were doing the wrong thing. It was like piles of money. And I remember he pulled out his bill phone and had like hundreds of dollars like stacked up, and, and he just started flipping off money. I didn't know who he was. So I was like, who is this guy that's just showing his money like this? Then he, he gave me his platinum card and was like, here, just put it on that. And I ran to our CEO at the time office and I said, hey, who's, who's this Brian Dunn dude? And he was like, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't, you, you don't need to know who that is. So I was like, okay, whatever. Well, a week later, I get a call from him and he says, hey, I would love for you to come over to the office. Now, I've never talked to him, really. We never had a deep conversation. And he said, why don't you come over? I, I get over to Best Buy. And if you've been over to Best Buy, they have a huge corporate campus. And I'm there. And it's like 100 people in the lobby trying to sell to Best Buy. And I walk up to the front desk. And the lady says, I said, hey, I'm here to see Mr. Dunn. And she says, oh, you must be Clarence. And I was like, this is weird. I'm like, how does she know my name? And she's like, all right, let me call them. And normally, I'm sure you, 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 you know, most, most executives do this, you know, you send the you know, assistant to go get the person to then sit them in a the room and wait for a second and then you walk in with your interest. Well, he didn't do that. <laughs> Is that what you do? Mm, depends. Okay. It depends. We can talk about that at dinner. We can talk about it. We'll talk about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and um, so come through the the security door because it's, it's all it's all tinted so you can't see inside he walks out and the whole lobby stops and he walks out and he gives me a big hug kisses on my cheek like just like and i'm thinking like we're on the episode of to catch a predator i don't know what's going on like like i don't know what's going on at this point i am i am flabbergasted that this dude is doing this right so he, he, we, we walk inside to inside of Best Buy. <laughs> You're not going to be able to share this podcast. <laughs> podcast, you paid behind it. It's out there. Um, and so he walks me inside of Best Buy, and he, um, I remember there was a janitor pushing a bucket, and he stopped the janitor and he said, Hey, thank you so much for taking care of my office yesterday. And he pulled out a $10 bill and gave it to him. And he just said, He said, Thank you. And I remember at that moment, I thought about leadership, the leader that I worked for, who like I hated at the time. And I was like, it was always about fear and always about you know scaring you into doing something. And um, I was like, wow, here we, here's the dude that's probably the most powerful dude in consumer electronic telling the janitor, thank you. 
And so that is when he took me to the back of the, the cafeteria and he just said, hey, I think you're special. Um, one day you're going to be the CEO of your own company. And if you listen to me, um, I, will, I will give you things and you will have a life that you didn't know existed. He had, been, he had been like focused on you. He'd been watching. He, he knew you from the gym, and he'd been watching you. And you, you had been in, in first, you know, first guy in the in the morning, last guy out at night. And so he was, you know, he was, uh, he 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 was, uh, he, he he had experience with you, even though you didn't know it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Rod. Oh, I wanna I wanna piggyback on that. Not the predator thing, but <laughs> <laughs> but this conversation of mentor and mentee, you know, is. Clarence was telling that story. It made me think about affirmation from someone who didn't have to give me that affirmation that was someone other than my mom or my dad, right? Or my aunts or uncles, right? So growing up in Oklahoma City in the early 70s, when I went to elementary school, we, we were bust. And I found myself, you know, grew up in a predominantly African-American neighborhood, actually an African-American neighborhood. And I was bused to a school that as we drove along the highway, the 45 minutes or so to get to the school, the neighborhoods changed, the houses changed. I didn't recognize those kind of cars because they weren't in my neighborhood. And I was at elementary school. Uh, first grade, my teacher, Nancy Burke. Nancy Burke was a woman who, I guess, as I think about a mentor, was my mentor who happened to be my first grade teacher. And, you know, I was this pretty studious individual at the time, and I always wanted to please and do the right thing. And I remember we, we had a small section where we read a book, and then we went back to our tables and our desks, and then, you know, we did something else, but we would come together to discuss the book. And for some odd reason, I didn't read whatever I was supposed to read that day. And as we were sitting in our inner circle, she called on me. And, you know, I sheepishly, well, I, I don't know. And she asked me to go stand out in the hall. And I knew I was in trouble. And when Nancy Burke, who didn't look like me, didn't look like my mother, uh, came out in the hall, she looked at me and she goes, you know what, Rod? Out of all these students in this class, you're the one. You're special. You are going to do amazing things in life that you can't even imagine. And I was a first grader. And that affirmation from the, I remember, I know that today. So I think for all of us, that affirmation, especially when it comes from someone who doesn't have to give it to you, who doesn't look like you, who's not in your inner circle, who's not your, your mom or dad or aunts and uncles and grandma and grandpas. But that affirmation means a lot. And I can see how it impacted you because Nancy Burke impacted me. And I'll carry that with me for the rest of my life. And in that class, the majority of the students, uh, it was predominantly, you know, uh, majority. My next door neighbor, Melody, and I were the only two African-American little kids in that class. And Nancy Burke picked me out and told me I was special. And that's impacted my life. I don't know how I'm going to ask another question because I'm, I'm tearing up. It's a great story, and I'm remembering moments like that. And it really makes a difference. It really it makes, makes, a difference. makes a huge difference, David. Yeah, it really does. Um, wow. Uh, can we switch to tactical stuff? Let's switch to tactical stuff. 
If Clarence says we can. <laughs> Don't take the big chance. <laughs> hey, I, I mean, if you want to. Hey, I, I see you. I, I, I mean, yeah, that, that's, that stuff really matters. Um, it's, yeah. Let's, let, let's talk about tactical stuff. You are all extreme, and Sean, I'll start with you, extremely busy, high-performing people. You have a lot of demands on your time. And the demands now, I think, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm just old, are worse because it, there's constant noise. There's no shutting off if you don't affirmatively shut off. What can you tell people works doesn't work. Like, uh, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you handle that? I'm looking for what works. Yeah. So uh, I don't have a good answer on that. Um, and, and you're absolutely right that I don't know if it's worse. I know that at, Clarence actually has in his in his email signature. I'm sending this email at a time that works for me. Please respond at a time that works for you. Something along those lines, right? Um, and. There was a period in starting our firm where I felt like I was just constantly operating on other people's time, and I re recognized it was not sustainable. Um, where it was, you know, I, you know, I'm on the West Coast, and I could be on calls at 6 a.m. Uh, with folks on the East Coast, and then I could be on calls at 6 p.m. with folks on the West Coast, and it could just be, you know a 14-hour day of being on other, other people's time and never being alone to think or to do deep work or um, tackle my own to-do list. Um, so I haven't, I don't have a, a magic bullet solution at this point. I do know that having priorities weekly and having priorities daily made a massive, you know, uh, uh, was a massive improvement in terms of what I was accomplishing week to week and just making sure that the things I cared about were getting done. Um, but so prioritization is, is the first thing. I think as a leader of a team, tr trust and allowing other folks to do things without me sitting next to them or without me reading every you know sentence and and like formatting slides. I'm the worst on the team at formatting slides, but I would have the strongest opinions on how they should be formatted. So it was just like a bad formula for how much time I was spending on them. Um, so let's let's go with prioritization and then trust and delegation. Um, being the things that I that have been have been working for me, but still, there's a, a way to, ways to go. Can I prevail on you for uh, however long you want on a, on just a follow up question? How do you prioritize? Like, what what's your filter? Um, I mean, I have amazing colleagues who, at the start of the year and mid year, help establish firm wide and individual, you know, uh, objectives and, and key results, and then looking at those and looking at the, my list and seeing what connects to those and what doesn't is really the way that I, that I do it. Um, and then like things, you have to be adaptable, you have to be flexible until things change. But, um, but even when I feel like I've gotten away from those for a while, um, I found that like even starting the year and, and, and having some like formal processes for how you're actually reviewing starts to make it almost instinctual and you start to notice that you're making decisions and you're prioritizing things because you've trained yourself to focus on the things that matter, but um, but yeah, we have a, so we have a, actually have a formal process. I think that's a, that, that that's super important to to actually set up like how are we actually going to go through this, and then are we going to actually stick with it? Uh, because then you have your 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 true north. This is what we're trying to do, and if if what we're spending time on isn't accomplishing the mission, yep. why are we spending time on it? Um, 
there's so much to talk about. Clarence, operator, entrepreneur, operator, and now you're evaluating entrepreneurs and operators. What's, what's different about that? What's, what's something that surprised you about that? I, I think, and I think Sean will agree with this, that sometimes you sit in front of founders and you're just like, I don't care what they're doing, I'm investing. Like, they're just an unbelievable person. And it's funny how often that doesn't happen. Like, I, I thought because I was a founder and I raised a bunch of money that kind of everybody, this is, this is just how it goes. But I sit in front of founders every day and I don't get that spark and it actually speaks to, I think, like how hard this job is. Like this is a really hard job every day to evaluate talent, evaluate people in real time. Because I don't get, you know, like when me and you met, like, I think y'all invested, what, four weeks later or something like that, five weeks later? It was, it was pretty fast. It was, yeah, it was shorter than that. Yeah, yeah. It was, you, it was, you, you came prepared and sent the memo and yeah. you made it easier to, to know what we needed to know. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, David. I'm sorry. Um, sorry. But it, it was like, like this job is so much harder than I thought it was going to be simply because like, like humans are humans and you have to figure them out fairly quickly. And I thought that I would be a better judger of that. And I actually really suck at it. Oh, interesting. So... Uh What's your so are you adapt you're obviously going to adapt your method because you don't want to continue to suck at it. Right. So what what are you doing? Um, I think it's about you know talking to really smart people, right? Like I just sent Sean him a deal the other day. More from like yes, I want them to invest, but more like I actually want to watch how they evaluate the deal, right? So we can make sure we're making the right decision, right? And I think that's a big part of this job is like like leaning on other people to see what their opinions are and how they're thinking about it to know if, how you're thinking is the right way to think about it. Interesting. Okay. Um, hey, Rod, six months, and I, I said you're the worst retiree in the world, and I, I'm standing by that. <laughs> so I, you're six months in <clears throat> transitioning to the business world is like somebody else's like four years or something. But what, what's what been surprising you about that? You know, try, trying to understand how, how people invest capital or allocate capital and run businesses and... You're like, oh, this is kind of the same thing I've been doing for the last 37 years, or is it is it surprisingly different? Well, so kind of lean on what Clarence said. It's 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 surrounding yourself with people that are more talented than you and listening, right? And paying attention and observing. So I've been doing a lot of that, and I think that's very helpful. Uh, one of the things, and in that intellectual curiosity, one of the things that I did while I was in the military, um, I went to Harvard Business School for the advanced management program, right? So all the business cases uh, for an MBA student is just accelerated for the executive level. So I had that experience. So I've leaned on that, that intellectual curiosity. And then, you know, with Sean and others, just try to surround myself with people in the business and, and then being open to the fact that I'm learning a new language. Uh, I, and I love that. Yeah. Uh, having the courage to ask questions and put yourself out there and say, hey, you know what? I don't know everything, uh, and I never will, and no one will, but um, this is an area where I think I can grow, and having the courage to put yourself in that situation where you might fail, and being okay with that. So, that helps my acceleration. 
I like it. Last question, I think, depending on what you guys say. Um, and anybody can answer this, and maybe all three of you will. As uh, we're sitting here at Sixth Street, I'm sitting here as a, one of the leaders of Sixth Street. What can we be doing better? It's not your responsibility to think of this, but I'd love your views to make sure that our population, our people, are the best from the broadest possible walks of life, so we look more like America, and that we're allocating opportunities, as Vijay said, talent is evenly distributed, but opportunities are not, that we're allocating opportunities more equitably. What, what do you think, when you think about either what the military could have done or the businesses you've worked in could have done or the business that you evaluate could, could be doing, and Sean, this is kind of your business, right? What, what, what's your advice to me? This is a panel question, right? So can I go last? <laughs> then I'll go first. Where we all answer? I'll go, I'll go yeah. first then. So... Uh, <laughs> I think organizations, firms that recognize that, you know, today is not tomorrow and is willing to invest in the future and know that, you know, and VJ was spot on, you know, talent is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's really up to an organization or a firm to go out and cultivate that, that talent and create a welcoming environment, create programs that invite individuals in so that they see and learn uh, and... Uh, I think that if you do that, and I think Sixth Street is doing a wonderful job of that, uh, and that's only going to increase, I think that will uh, accelerate the diversity in Sixth Street. And when I say diversity, I'm thinking diversity of experience, diversity of thought, diversity across the you know gender, just diversity. Diversity is good. When I sit and I actually have to make a hard decision uh, as a now retired journal officer, I wanted people around the table that had different experiences than me, that had different backgrounds than me, and create an environment where everyone could voice their opinion, and then collectively we could make a decision as a group, and ultimately as a leader, it's my responsibility. And I think that's what you can continue to do at Sixth Street, just invite, inviting in that culture and having that pipeline of talent and understanding that talent is everywhere. You know, there's lots of Nancy Bursts out there that are talking to Rod Lewis's, but you have to cultivate that and grow that. Mm -hmm. I think, I remember when I started Upsea, an investor said to me once, um, the reason why I don't invest in black founders was because I've never seen a black founder ring the opening bell. So start a company and take it to the, the exit. And I remember, yeah, it was, it was sucks, that's, right? That's a stunning. Yeah, he told me to my face, uh, yes. Um, well, not that it's just very bad reasoning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that was his reasoning, right? Um, and so I remember that today. And so I, I think to answer your question, I would say, you know, change your view on what is the best, right? Because I believe I could come to Sixth Street and do you tons of value, right? But my background probably wouldn't make it through the resume, right? Mm -hmm. And when you look at people differently, when you when you look at people through a different lens, not through the lens that you've been looking at them, you know, historically. Right. Like there are gems out there that can, you know, add value to your firm and to your company and to you, um, if you give them a shot. So I was like, like give give untraditional people a chance. Two good answers. I, um, I think so, I know Sixth Street well. I know you well. 
Uh, we've talked about this for, for several years, and I think you all are doing a lot of the things that I think are important. Um, I think pushing further in that direction is is what I would do. And the, the two things that I'm most excited about um, are, so I think seven years ago, I think I had three or four meals with Alan Waxman and didn't know what Sixth Street did because he, anytime I asked a question about it, he actually just wanted to, he, he came back with a, a question for me. Only one? No, it was a ratio of probably 20 to 1, right? <laughs> one question for me. But it was it was just not, it, it was such an opaque, I mean, this is back when it was, you know, it was almost you know, all you were doing was private credit too, right? So it was already like a, a, a complicated, not mainstream, you know, thing that you were doing. Uh, it was a team that didn't like talking about themselves um, and was pretty under the radar. And so one, now just by like talking about what you do, more people are, are aware of it. I think being very intentional about putting out content, r launching programs where uh, when a you know employee at a basketball gym sees somebody with a platinum card, they don't think this person is doing bad things. They think like, oh, they must be working in, pr in private equity. Um, I grew up in Silicon Valley surrounded by families that were building massive tech companies. I had no idea what a venture capitalist was until I was 25, right? Um, I didn't realize, like I heard, I heard what a venture, there was a career called venture capital, but I knew nothing about it, and I was in the heart of it. And so I think there's just so many people out there who have no idea about this world, who would, who would be good at it, who would find it interesting, who could do it, who are just not even, like, they're not even on the field because they don't know the field exists. Um, and then the other thing that you're doing, which I um, appreciate and want to see you doing, doing more of, is thinking beyond just the, the traditional recruiting cycles and think, you know creating creating paths. So, all right, let's teach people that this industry actually exists, and let's create these onboarding ramps where maybe they'll end up working at Sixth Street, maybe they'll end up working somewhere else. But like we're just by having more people be aware of what we're doing. There's more people that are there's more inputs, and so the outputs can look more representative of the country. So. I think it's a great answer and um, a great advice, and that's what this these conversations are about. It's what I mean. Vijay mentioned, I think mentioned the fellowship program, and we were talking about this before. Um, that's what that's about. It's it, it's. I mean, Clarence was saying there are people who you know are to the manner born a little bit in finance, right? They have parents who do this. They speak the language when they're you know six years old. They know they want to go into investment banking, God forbid. But that that's like that's how. And we we need to get to students who. Um, aren't necessarily thinking about the world that way because they just don't know. And we, we, we explicitly say to people when they come to the fellowship, lots of folks who you, you know who are applying to these programs, they have an uncle in finance, we're your uncle. That's what we're doing. We don't, you may end up somewhere else, you may end up with us, that's great. But we, you, you can come back to us for, for help, for guidance, for, you know, to, to kind of to, to read the signs because it is its own language, but it's not uh, brain surgery or flying um, uh, complicated aircraft to all parts of the world. Anyway, I'm going to end it there. Guys, thank you. Not only is this like, you know, great professionals and, you know, wonderful thinkers about stuff, we're friends and it's just a joy to be able to do this uh, with you here and uh, I look forward to many more. So thanks. Same time next year. All right, let's do it. Thank, thank you. you.
That was Major General Rodney Lewis, Clarence Bethia, and Sean Mendy. We sat down in Dallas at the Dallas Holocaust and Human Rights Museum on December 5th, 2023. While Rod, Clarence, and Sean, they've all led very different career paths. They each had powerful perspectives to share on how to build uh, strong organizations and to be a, a great leader. You heard about the power of being part of a mission bigger than yourself, how to inspire teams to stay focused on a shared goal during challenging times. You heard about how unexpected connections can lead to valuable lessons and mentorship, and they can sometimes change the trajectory of your career. You heard about the ways an organization's culture can be pressure tested, how those moments can also define core values, and you heard about the importance of investing uh, in recruiting talent outside of the sort of uh, well-worn patterns uh, and you'll create paths for people that you wouldn't have known about otherwise and that was kind of the point of the event. So thank you Rod, to Clarence, to Sean for taking the time to share your wisdom, your experiences with our team. Thanks to the 6th Street Black uh, Employee Affinity Group for putting together an incredible event and, and to everyone who attended. And finally, special thanks to the Dallas Holocaust and Human Rights Museum for hosting. I hope you all walk away from that conversation with a new perspective on what it means to lean with purpose because I know I did. Thanks very much. You've been listening to It's Not Magic, a Sixth Street podcast. You can read more about our guests on SixthStreet.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it and follow it at Sixth Street News on Twitter for more news on the show and our firm. Thanks to Sixth Street's production team, Patrick Clifford and Rip Shaw, putting this together with sound engineering by Stephen Cologne. Our theme song is It's Not Magic, an original creation by Patrick Dyer-Wolf. Once again, I'm David Stiepelman. Thanks for listening. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Sixth Street, and Sixth Street is not providing any investing, financial, economic, legal accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. Please see additional disclosures on our website for more details. Mm-hmm.